Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, and we got as far as verse 6, so we'll be picking up this evening in verse 7. Now, of, of the seven churches in Revelation, two stand tall above the rest. There are only two of the seven churches that are without specific condemnation. There's only encouragement for these churches. And those are Smyrna, which we've dealt with already, and Philadelphia. So tonight we come to a church, a church that remains in good standing, a church that has been standing strong for the truth of the gospel. Tonight we come to the church of Philadelphia, also called the Faithful Church. And so here in in chapter 3, verse 7, verse excuse me, chapter 3, verse 7, uh, we read, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. And this is the way, again, that each of these letters has begun. And so instruction is given to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Now, Philadelphia is located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. So remember that all of these churches... Uh, that we've seen here, the order in which they are follows a geographic pattern. It's as if when someone was dispatched, when John was dispatched with these letters, that he was able to go to each city in such order. And so we've gone from Sardis now to Philadelphia, and this is the city known as the city of brotherly love. We have our own Philadelphia, of course, in Pennsylvania, and uh, and it is a, a name that, that comes from this, uh, from this city. And this church, again, is recognized for her faithful witness and commitment to the Great Commission. And so this is a church that, as we will see, is a church focused on evangelism. Now, if there is a church from the seven letters that you would want to be, it's this one. This is the church that we would look at amongst the seven and say, this is the church we're aspiring to be. Now you could say, well, what about Smyrna? Smyrna was, uh, Smyrna was a church that was doing good things. Yes, but Smyrna was a church that was being incredibly persecuted. So, I mean, you could. You could say, yeah, I picked Smyrna, right? But you're going to be picking a church that's, that's faithful, yes, but a church that's enduring some incredible difficulties. Whereas, not that Philadelphia doesn't by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, there's, uh, it, it's, it's noted in extra-biblical texts that there are Christians from this particular church that are persecuted and even executed along with Polycarp. And so they're experiencing persecution, but this is the one that's sort of highlighted as really just, here's a church that's doing it right, that's remaining faithful, and again, that's focused on really evangelism, fulfilling the Great Commission. Okay? And so Philadelphia is named after a king of Pergamon, Attalus Philadelphus, is the builder of the city. And in this particular city, there is a long history of earthquakes and destruction. Many of the cities that we've considered had experienced destruction at various times and were rebuilt, this one included. And so the people, after its rebuilding in AD 17, because of how frequently there were earthquakes and the destruction that came upon them, there were many people who refused to return to the city proper, and instead they lived in kind of the outskirts uh, which was largely volcanic land, and they would just make their way into the city uh, for various matters, but they did not live there. Now, like other cities in this area, pagan worship was prevalent. There was really no exception at this particular time. The city was referred to often as Little Athens for the prevalence of worship of Greek gods and goddesses. And so the, the city of Philadelphia was situated geographically along the main route from Rome to the east. 
was about 100 miles east of uh, Smyrna, and therefore was considered the gateway to the east. We have our gateway to the west. Uh, Lots of geographic areas have their uh, specific landmarks as they sort of made advancements Uh, in a particular direction into unknown territory. This particular area was the gateway to the east. And uh, we'll see here shortly a reference to an open door. And and this this would have resonated somewhat given the city's access to other key areas because they were considered sort of this gateway. This is the way that the letters work. Jesus is in tune with these churches. He knows these churches. It tells us that, that, that our Savior has an understanding of our culture, of our experiences, of the things that we're going through. He makes mention in e- each of these letters little things that we might be inclined to just sort of look over, but they, they mean something to these particular churches. And so for them, having this idea of an open door resonates because, because they know that they are a place where people are coming through. People are entering in and they're going to other parts of the world. And uh, Philadelphia was a prime location for the spread, really, of Greek culture initially. And so it was one of those cities that served as somewhat of a a melting pot because it was so prominent on the trade route and people would come through there and then they would head off to other areas. Their culture was influential. When it comes to America, it's often said that, you know, our style trends and cultural things that go on here are just a little bit behind that of Europe, that what's happening there is going to eventually make its way here. That's kind of what we can see happening in this particular city. Now, its position allowed, though, also for tremendous opportunity for evangelism. So it wasn't just the cultural aspects that were making their way elsewhere. Christians, of course, saw the opportunity to meet with and share the gospel with people, whether they were staying or passing through, as a way of spreading the word of God. And so often this idea of an open door speaks of opportunity. Here. here, We have an open door. We have a chance to do something here. God has put an opportunity in front of us. And so in this case, the opportunity was to share the gospel. So Philadelphia is commended for her role in using her strategic position to faithfully share the gospel. Despite the apparent risk and even subsequent persecution that may have come upon them, they were bold in their faith. And so what we really see in this letter is is the account of a faithful fellowship, a fellowship that is sharing the gospel, a fellowship that is fulfilling the Great Commission. They serve as an example to us. The church in Philadelphia is an example to the church today. And I think when we think strategy, when we think opportunity, it's the same for the church today. It's about us evaluating where are we? Where is our church physically located? Where is it that we meet? Who's around us? What are the opportunities? How are we seen? Where can we go? Where can we have influence? We should be asking those types of questions. Should the Lord make a way? Should He put an open door in front of us to move, to relocate? We need to look at that strategically and consider, okay, what are we going to do in this place? How are we going to reach people? What are we going to use this place for? What, what, what opportunities might it bring with it? And, and really, when we think about fulfilling the Great Commission, I want this for us. And we should want this. I want to see us grow in this area in the year ahead. And, and whether we grow numerically is, is really no matter. That, that's, not the, that's not the issue here. But rather that we are bold in sharing our faith. We have to take that seriously. It's a commandment in Scripture we can't ignore. Oswald Smith writes, Any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. It's a pretty powerful statement. And I don't know that it's one that can be debated. And sadly, there are many churches today who, are, who have distanced themselves so much from the Great Commission that they are simply great social clubs. And certainly, could, could, 
it could be said that they're no longer really churches. Maybe they're places for, for some Bible studies. But are they really about reaching the world with the truth of the Gospel? And you know, there's a lot of focus from, from churches on, and this has been language that's, that's been out there now for a few decades, especially around the time of the late 90s, early 2000s in the, the uh, emerging church movement, but a lot of focus on this idea of remaining relevant. And most often, relevancy was really with the wrong motivation. Relevancy was more in the vein of, of how are we going to sort of be attractive to the world? How are we going to go from seeming like this sort of stuffy, archaic, antiquated organization to being something that's, that's uh, attractive to the world today? And, and relevance, rather, is... or should be about whether or not we're still a gospel-focused, great commission church that will be faithful until the end. Because if if we depart from that, if we think that somehow relevance is about those other things and and less about the Word of God, and we'll get into a little bit of this on Sunday morning, then really what we're beginning to, to do is to deny that there is power in the Word of God. That you could have somebody take the Word of God who is in every way, shape, or f- and form from a worldly perspective, irrelevant, unattractive, not culturally relevant, but to proclaim the Word of God, which is living and active, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, the discerner of the intents of the heart. This has power. Amen? And so we're to be a church that will be faithful until the end. And guys, I plan on being that kind of church. I want us to be that kind of church. Especially when you see what's in store for the churches that are. When you get to the end of this letter and you see what awaits those who are faithful, who hold fast until the end, who keep His Word and don't deny His name, And so Jesus here in in John writing says, These things says He who is holy, He who is true, He who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. And so here we have our description of Jesus for this letter, and it's different than what we have seen before. Each of the descriptions have been slightly different, but the previous descriptions have been more rooted in the description of Jesus that we find in Revelation chapter 1. They've sort of come from that picture of Jesus. But this one's a little bit different. And this picture of Jesus brings with it not a sense of judgment, but a declaration of who He is and the confidence that we can have in Him. Really, the description of Jesus here for this church is one that should encourage the church. And it should encourage us. John writes, He is the one who is holy. This is a title given to the Messiah in the Old Testament. He's referred to as the Holy One. He is holy. He is set apart. He is sanctified. He is pure. He is different. Think about it. What, what, is, what, what is pure these days? What is it that you can put your trust in? What is it that you look out at the world? Is there anything else that you can find that you're like, man, that is different. That is set apart. That is pure. There's something special about that. There's not. We look, when we look at the horizontal at our world today, there's nothing out there. And it's, it's Him. He is the Holy One. Jesus is the only thing that, this, that, that can be offered to this world that truly people can look at and say, that is different. That is holy, that is true, that is pure, that is righteous. And so this is the letter to this church is saying, He's the Holy One. Here, Jesus is, is being offered to them, and, and it says He is true. This speaks of being genuine. It sort of is like He's the real deal. All this other stuff is fake. He's true. The one true Savior and triune God. 
He is dependable. He is trustworthy. Right? We, we, we live in this world today that has put an all-out assault on truth that has done everything it can to undermine truth by suggesting that truth is relative, that you can live your truth. And so because of that, then what is true? What is true? And, and I believe that, that we are moving towards a place where people are longing for truth. As much as, as people have sort of had fun going down this path of being like, well, maybe this is truth, and maybe this is true. They're coming back to a place where like, I want something to be true. I want something to be, to be solid. I want something to count on. I want something to believe in. I want something that is immovable and steadfast. And it's Him. He's the only thing. He is the sovereign one. So not only is He holy, He's righteous, He's different, He's pure, He's separate. Not only is He true, He's genuine, He's dependable, He's trustworthy, but He's in charge. He's powerful. He is the sovereign one. He says, He who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, this speaks of authority. He has the power and no one else. If we look back even to the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus there declares, I have the keys. He says, I have the keys. I have keys. I think the, I think the, the one key that I have on here that not many other people have, there's only like one more of these. It's for the thermostats. <laughs> Everyone else, there's multiple. Bunches of people have these keys. They're basically worthless at this point. Right? He says, I have the key. To what? He's got the key to the kingdom of heaven. To the, to the culmination of all things. Where, where are we right now? In the period of time, we are, we are, we are in between something. Bookends. What's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. What happens at the beginning of Genesis? Creation. What's the last book of the Bible? What happens at the end of Revelation? New creation. And we're in that in-between time where he is in the process of unfolding his plan of salvation and he is working to take things from what he began to what he will then finish he is he is right he's writing rectifying he says i, I have the key all that this is building to this place where you long to be where everything will, will be now even better than what it was originally, I've got the access to it. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. This is the prophet Isaiah. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. And so Jesus here once again proclaims, that's me. I have that authority. Right? And, and do we understand that? I mean, Jesus has all authority. Do we know that? He, he declared that himself. And do you know where he declared that? When did Jesus declare that he had all authority? Matthew 28, verse 18. What comes after that? The Great Commission. Coincidence? I think not. Thank you. <laughs> Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And from there then He said, Because I'm in charge, go therefore. Go. And so in Jesus, and let's just, let's just think about this for a moment. 
less even the Great Commission, Jesus says, I have all authority. And you, Christian, and all people for that matter, have been given the opportunity for a relationship with Him. You want to know somebody? How many people like to say, I I know a guy? Right? I know a guy. And you feel pretty powerful when you do, when you know somebody. Like, I can... I mean, there's been a few times I've been able to, you know, pull something off for somebody, and I'm like, I feel pretty awesome right now. Like, I had a connection, and I was able to get something for somebody. And that feels pretty cool. And, you know, people are like, oh, man, I can't believe you did this for me. Like, yeah, you know, I know a guy. (laughs) We know a guy, (laughs) right? You know the guy who has all authority. All authority. And so you get to have a relationship with him. And not just that, it's not just some, you know, because sometimes somebody knows a guy and they call the guy and the guy's like, oh, it's you again. Man, I'm sorry that I introduced myself to you at that event, right? I don't know that guy. Yeah, (laughs) this is the last time. This guy, he's praying for you. This guy knows you by name. This guy, at the end of time, as we saw in the previous letter, will confess your name. He's not going to be like, I don't know that guy. (laughs) I'm not with that guy. He's going to say your name. He's going to say, yeah, I know him. And so we see here that, that no one gets into heaven but through him to know him to know jesus and so is it any wonder that in john chapter 10 verse 9 jesus said i am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture what a promise do we know that guy do we know jesus It's no one else. And here's the problem. There are people who think that they are okay without Jesus. But they are effectively locked out of eternity with Him. And we know that He has the key. And an open door has been set before us lead people to him verse 8 jesus says i know your works see i have set before you an open door and no one can shut it there's an emphasis here jesus himself he's when when he says something more than once we should pay attention and so he declares again no one can shut it no one has that authority For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. He says, I know your works. This is a familiar phrase, and it's a reminder that he knows, he sees, he is aware of what they have done in his name for the kingdom. And he's a God who knows still today. He knows, he understands. And He has set an open door before them. Why? Because they have a little strength and they've kept His Word and they've not denied His name. They've been faithful. Jesus says, you have a little strength. This is is interesting here. And it's really an amazing thing. Of all the churches, this is... This is the one commended for its faithfulness, for not denying His name, for keeping His word. And He says it's a church of little strength. What this means is, they were a church that had little authority and little influence in their community. But they were faithful. 
Go back to the church in Sardis for a moment. That was the previous church, the dead church. This church looked like it had it going on. They had a reputation of being big, a reputation of being alive. If you talk to anybody in that community who belonged to a church, they were like, man, yeah, I go to, I go to Sardis. Yeah. We're doing all kinds of things. We got 12 services on Sunday. I'm not knocking a church that's got 12 services, okay? There's some really good ones that have a lot of services, and I think to myself, wow. That has got to be the strength of the Spirit. Jack Hibbs, preaching the way he preaches on a Sunday, impressive. They were literally, sidebar, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, was literally this past summer, they were looking for other churches in the community to send people to. Like, hey, go here. Because they literally couldn't fit, they couldn't fit anybody else. They set up an amphitheater outside. They were live streaming to different parts of the property. I mean, Jack was literally like, go there. And no, people just kept coming. Okay, so big does not mean bad. But when we compare it to what we've just seen in Sardis, we know that they had all sorts of, of, of the trappings, the, the, the appearance, the reputation of being big and alive, but inwardly they were dead. They were dead. It was just all activity with no progress. But here, Jesus, to a little church with a little power and a little influence, was doing a good work. And we get it so wrong sometimes, the things that we look at. And so this challenges our thinking once again on what success looks like. Chuck Swindoll, many of you know Chuck Swindoll. He says this, he says, The size of a congregation, the limitations of its location, or the restrictions of its budget should never determine its vision. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. God is infinite, magnificent, awesome, and mighty, beyond description or comprehension. When He chooses to open opportunities, the possibilities are endless. All we need to do is trust and follow Him wherever He leads. Sunday night, if you attended our family meeting or you watched it online, you heard me say regarding our budget, and I tried to be tactful in saying it because I didn't want to disparage our budget, but I said, it's really not that big of a budget compared to other churches. But yet, we've done amazing things. God has blessed us. God has done wonderful things to us. There's times when it's felt like, man, we've operated like a really big church at times. Well, it's because we serve a big God who when He calls you to do certain things is going to provide and He's going to equip. And he's, the, the, the way we've been able to give to missions, the staff that we have, the people we've been able to support, the folks that we've been able to send to things like the 10th the Hour Project. That's been amazing what God has done there. Because no matter your size or, or your location or your budget, if He calls you to do it, He'll equip you for it. It'll lead you through it. And so set before this church is an open door that no one can close. An opportunity that, that no one can hinder. Now some believe that this is speaking, that this open door that's before them, some lean, and these are, these are good scholars, they, they lean towards this being a really a gateway to heaven. Saying that because this church is faithful, uh, that, that this open door is, is look, this is, this is your entrance into eternity. This is the promise of your salvation. And others say that this open door is the opportunity for effectiveness in evangelism, that this is an opportunity to do more, to reach more with the gospel. And I would certainly lean that way if I was forced to sort of pick two descriptions. Paul in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 12 speaks of an open door. He writes that a door was opened for him by the Lord, for him to take the gospel to a new place. And it's a similar Greek phrase that we see both in 2 Corinthians as well as here in Revelation 3. And so, again, I would lean that way. But here's the thing. I see them sort of in tandem. The gospel is transitive. What does it mean? I said this on Sunday. The gospel is transitive, which means this simply, to know him is to make him known. 
You cannot, you cannot tell me that you fully know God. You cannot tell me, oh, I know him, I know Jesus, and not have a desire to make him known. If there's no desire to make him known, I'm not saying you're not saved, but what I would say is that you don't fully know him. That there's more of him to know. Because the more of him that we know, the more we want to make him known. That's transitive. And this is why He calls us. This is why He chooses us. He, he, he chooses us to make Him known. I was considering this this morning in, in uh, my Bible class and going through Isaiah with the students and, and looking at what God did in, in bringing His people Israel into bondage once again now in Babylon and, and the craziness that they had to sort of think that, that look, the, the God that has chosen us, who delivered us from Egypt, which was a very unique event. No one else had experienced anything like that. And and then uh, there was the Sinai Theophany where he appeared to us and we had an experience with God that nobody else has had. And it's clear that his hand has been upon us. He's been leading us and guiding us and using us for his glory. And now 586 BC comes along and, and here comes the Babylonian Empire and they crush us and they lead us off into captivity and, and what now? Now it seems like God is, is he's just, he's defeated. What do we tell people now? Well, of course, their, their captivity was, yes, partially a consequence of their behavior. It was judgment upon them. But God, in His infinite wisdom, was doing much more as He took them into Babylon and then began to use them to testify of who He is such that now He's reaching pagan cultures. And he's using these people because they know him uniquely to now make him known. And the other crazy part about that is Israel at that particular time could be seen as really just a bunch of liars. But God says, I'm going to use you to testify of me. But because they had an understanding of who he was, they began to make him known, and now he was reaching new areas. Jew and Gentile. To know Him is to make Him known. That's what He's been about from the very beginning. Chosen. Chosen for what? Because you're special? Because I like you and not them? No, that's not what it's about. And I think, I think for all the effort and the energy that's been put into trying to understand aspects of what we now call Reformed theology and Calvinism, this idea of election and predestination and, 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 and then what's come from that, you know, the frozen chosen and the people who are like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm special and I'm, I'm, I'm elect and, and you aren't. And think about, and this isn't unique to me, and Think about a group of people. They, what, what, if, what if right now, all of us, this wasn't our sanctuary. It's Chris Wright who says this. He's the author of The Mission of God's People. What if this was a cave? And there was a cave-in. And we were stuck. All of us. We're just stuck. We can't get out. But there's a little bit of light over there. There's a little bit of light and a tiny little thing. And everybody's like, Brennan, you're, gonna, you're not going to fit through that. You're not going. You can't go. And so amongst us, we choose somebody who can get through that little hole. And so we choose them. We decide it's you. And what have we chosen them for? Well, we chose them to go to freedom, right? Absolutely. Now they're free. Praise God. What are they going to do? Get help to come back and get everybody else, right? Chosen so that you can be a blessing to the nations. But we, in our limited perspective and our finite understanding, we want to look at them and we go, well, I guess God just chose them. He didn't choose them. Now, yes, I've, I could I've easily right there, depending on who we're talking to, opened a whole big theological can of worms. But we're not going to go there tonight. <laughs> Instead, what we're going to focus on is the fact that I absolutely believe 
that those who know God are called to make him known because he desires that none should perish. And so before this church has been placed an open door, And I think these things, once again, they go together. Because if there's an open door to the kingdom, to me, because I've kept his word and I have not denied his name, well then if I've done that, if I've kept his word and not denied his name, then I have been on mission telling others about him. And sometimes then when we're doing that, it will bring discomfort Certainly, most of the time. And maybe even persecution. But verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And so from here then, Jesus goes to an assurance and a confidence that, look, it will all be taken care of. It will be okay. And so just as in Smyrna, the church that was persecuted, there are those who say they are Jews, but to get the pressure off of them, they turn the persecution toward the Christians. And, and, and so they, along with the rest of the unbelieving world, will acknowledge that God loves His children and He has been faithful. And there will be victory. And so what Jesus calls us to here is an understanding that, look, you being faithful, not denying My name, keeping My Word, it's probably going to bring some persecution upon you. But don't worry. There will come a day when all of that is righted. Philippians 2, 9-11, For this reason God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is going to be a day when every knee will bow. Every single person created in the image of God, those who received Him and those who rejected Him, will all bow before Him and confess Him. Verse 10, Because you have kept My command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Earlier I said we want to be a faithful church because we see what comes for the church that's faithful. And now we start to get into that here in verse 10. And we've certainly come, verse 10, if you didn't know it, Revelation 3.10 is a hotly debated verse. <laughs> what, is, what does this mean? Well, here's what we do know. What we know is that to this church that has persevered, they will be kept from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. That's what it says. The debate comes in deciding what does keep mean and what exactly is the hour of trial. Okay. Now, some would suggest that particularly with this verse, we not take a very firm or dogmatic stance. And that's fair. I think there's wisdom in such things, as we shouldn't necessarily be divided over such matters in the church, but rather have unity around Jesus. To be able to all say within the church that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. Right? I can get behind that. But I'm also pretty passionate <laughs> about what I think verse 10 gives us evidence for. And I believe that it gives us evidence for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Pre-tribulation meaning before the tribulation, the church will be raptured and kept from that hour of trial which is to come upon unbelievers on the earth. Now, I think that because to be kept from is the Greek, that word kept is the Greek ek, E-K, as it's transliterated. This doesn't speak of through, but it speaks of out, out of. 
And it speaks more specifically here of a specific time frame. What kind of time frame? How about an hour? An hour of trial? We will be kept out of a period of time. What is that period of time? The hour of trial. What is that hour? The tribulation. Jesus says that those who have kept His Word and endured, they will be kept out of the hour of testing that will test the whole world and those who live on the earth. And whenever we see this phrase repeated, especially in Revelation, this, this phrase of um, the whole world, and we see it in Revelation 6.10, Revelation 8.13, Revelation 11.10, Revelation 12.12, Revelation 13.8, verses 12 and 14 as well. It is always referring to unbelievers. It's always referring to unbelievers. It's not referring to His church. When, when, when the hour of trial comes upon the whole world, the whole world is always referencing unbelievers. And shortly, when we get into chapter 4, and we begin to consider the tribulation, do you know who's gone? The church. There's no more talk about the church in that time. It's no longer spoken of until after the tribulation. John MacArthur writes specifically of this verse. He says, This verse promises that the church will be delivered from the tribulation and that the rapture takes place before the tribulation. First, the test is yet future. Okay, This hour of trial is in the future. Second, the test is for a definite, limited time. Jesus described it as the hour of testing. Third, he says, it is a test or trial that will expose people for who they really are. Fourth, the test is worldwide in scope since it will come upon the whole world. Finally, and most significantly, its purpose is to test those who dwell on the earth, a phrase used as a technical term in the book of Revelation for unbelievers. And so this hour of testing, this is Daniel's 70th week. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the seven-year tribulation which will come upon the earth now post-tribulationists say that the church will be preserved through this time kept through this time but cared for but the problem is where is the church during this time we see that there will be 144,000 and a third of the jews preserved we see tribulation saints mentioned throughout but no mention of the church those who have been faithful from the beginning and have gone through. Rather, what we see, I think more clearly in Revelation, and we'll get there, is their presence in the throne room of heaven. And so an hour of trial will come upon the whole world, but not the church of Philadelphia. God is going to keep these believers from a specific hour which is to come. And that time is a time to try those who dwell on the earth, not believers. We're not to be part of that trial. This church has promised that they will not go through the tribulation. That's what I believe. The mid-tribs, they say, well, hey, the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, those aren't really tribulation. The problem is, at that point, in the, at the point of the three and a half years, we see the death of the two prophets who have been tormented and, and, and the world celebrates and I find it a little hard to go, well, so the first three and a half years weren't that bad. I mean, no, read it. They're bad. But that's why I often say when somebody comes to me and say, I'm mid, I'm like, eh, okay. And somebody says, I'm post, and I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. You love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. Okay, praise God. Let's come back to this. And here's the other thing. Why try to hold to a belief that requires that we endure some great trial, some wrath, that I don't think the Word says that we're intended for? Because we're not intended for wrath, but that's, a, that's eternal wrath. That's final judgment. Well, you just have an escapist mentality. You're darn right. <laughs> I want out. Okay, I don't want to go through it. Well, what if you're caught off guard then and you do have to go through it? Are you, gonna, are you just going to give up and walk away from Jesus? Well, no, my salvation is secure. We need to deal with that doctrine now too? I have the Holy Spirit that indwells me. He's going to confirm me till the end. So if we have to go through it, well then, by golly, I'll look at you and say, you were right. 
But I'm going to get through it because the Word says I will. He's going to confirm me to the end. But I don't think I'm appointed for wrath. I don't think Jesus is the kind of bridegroom that's going to marry his wife and then beat her on the honeymoon. I don't think that's what he's going to do. I don't think I need to go through it because I think he already did. I think he took it. And that seems a little more consistent with the grace that I've come to know and understand. But we can agree to disagree. Verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. This is our hope. Quickly. When Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, we can say, praise God. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. We do. We want that. I think that's, we should want that. But we can say that with good conscience when we are obedient to sharing the gospel every opportunity we get. Because if we're hiding out just saying, Lord, come quickly, we're also effectively saying, I don't care about everybody else. Now remember, quickly is less about a period of time. It's when he says quickly, and then people go, well, it's been 2,000 years. What is the deal? It's not so much a span of time, but how he will arrive, the suddenness of his arrival. Boom. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. But here's the other thing. It is still imminent. The doctrine of imminency means that his, his coming for his church could happen at any moment, prophetically speaking, there's nothing else that needs to happen. Okay? It means that any moment. And, and I believe in this order as well because once I begin to see and understand the tribulation and the events of the seven-year tribulation, His glorious second coming for all the world to see suddenly becomes a lot more predictable. And so his, the suddenness of his coming for his church seems to me to make sense before these events. Not as sort of a rapture of the church in the air and then a quick U-turn back down to earth. Because once we see, and you'll, we'll get there as we go through Revelation, we'll see that there's some, there's some events that are going to signal his second coming. Now, have we seen this promise anywhere else? Any other, I should say, in any of the other letters? No. It's significant that to the faithful church is this promise of His quick and imminent return. And so the encouragement then to endure. So the challenge then is to hold fast, stay strong. He says that no one may take your crown and... I don't think that this is an allusion to the loss of salvation. That doesn't seem to fit the context, nor do I believe in that. I do believe in the eternal security of the believer. Rather, I think this is about rewards in heaven, which will be greater for those who finish well, who keep their eyes on Jesus, who continue to take advantage of the open door that's set before them. I think we'll be, believers will be recognized, rewarded for such obedience. Verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. A pillar. He says, I'll make him a pillar. I mean, some people be like, well, that's, I don't want to be a pillar. I want to be me. I want to do things. You're not an actual pillar, right? There's Revelation 21:22 says that in the new Jerusalem, the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I think this speaks of complete security and being established in his very presence. Of him saying you're going to be in me and you'll never go out anymore. With me in my presence forever and not just that but he says i will write on him the name of my god 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. I don't know how this is going to (laughs) work. Some people are like, see, I knew I could get a tattoo. Here's, here's what I think this is, this is telling us. That in some way that only God knows, written upon us will be the name of our God, the city of our God, and the name of our Lord who we belong to. What does that mean? Well, think for a moment here. Even go back to this past Sunday. What forms our identity? So often we think about who we are, what's my name, where am I from, what family am I a part of. There's some foundational components that form our identity like that, aren't there? And so here, he's saying what's going to be written upon us is essentially, I belong to God. My home is heaven. And Jesus is my Lord. What an identity. Amen? I belong to God. My home is in heaven. And Jesus is my Lord. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will we be found faithful? That's what awaits those who are to be found faithful is to keep his word to not deny his name that's what we're called to and that's the process of discipleship to put yourself in a position where you're surrounded by the body of Christ your family and you've availed yourself to fellowship and accountability that causes you to daily walk in obedience to His Word. That gives you, by the power of His Spirit moving within you, the confidence to not deny His name, to be led of His Spirit, following Him each and every day. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.